Stay hungry, stay foolish. Today's show is with one of the leading global writers of hard science fiction and indeed cyber fiction. He is author of over 18 titles, and what I think is fascinating for followers of this show is the science he puts in the fiction. As opposed to fantasy writing, science fiction is based on possible realities, and that fact is often lost on many of us. A physicist and computer scientist, he toiled in the vineyards of high tech for 30 years as everything from engineer to senior vice president. Once suitably intoxicated, he began writing full-time. We welcome Edward M. Lerner. Thank you, Aidan. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you on the show, Edward. I was thinking when I was reading the book, which we'll get into more in a second, for humanity to progress, we must imagine. And science fiction writers like yourself use imagination and fact to create possible scenarios and realities of tomorrow. And oftentimes we think of science fiction as fantasy. And in your case in particular, it's very much based on your own experience of technology. I quite agree. The reviewer for Analog Science Fiction, which is the leading English language science fiction magazine, has a very handy distinction. He says that science fiction is the literature of the possible and fantasy is the literature of the impossible. When you think of stuff like strategy, you think the missing ingredient is often imagination because many people who work in strategy work in incremental improvement or incremental innovation and that bridging the gap between that and where things are going can be quite difficult for people with linear minds one of the advantages of having worked in high tech for years before i became a full-time writer is i became accustomed to thinking about how things can break and how things can be abused in writing fiction, of course, you want something to go horribly wrong to challenge your protagonist. And you want uh, the bad guys in your story some way or another to cause mischief. All too often in science fiction, the, the sloppy, lazy way of doing that is you have a hacker who can break into anything in 13 seconds. I like to think that one of the pluses of my background is that I think of realistic ways that uh, things can go wrong and people can abuse technology without making the original developers look like idiots. Absolutely. That really comes across in the writing. And, and what I love, the book we're going to talk about today is Troping the Light Fantastic. We might start by explaining what a trope is. But before we do, what I loved about Troping the Light Fantastic is you put the science behind the fiction, which helps many of us really understand stuff like we're going to talk about today the future of humanity, cyborgs, robotics, but also then artificial intelligence. And you break it down into all the different parts, neural networks, machine learning, soft and hard AI, and a lot of terms people would not have heard of and certainly not seen so well described. It'd be great to start with tropes because a lot of people won't know what this is. And I think that'd be a great way to explain and give a bit of context for the book. Sure. In the broadest sense, a trope is figurative language. That can be something as simple as a metaphor. You know, Shakespeare famously said, all the world's a stage. It can be a simile. One of my favorite similes is from an old Keith Lommer novel, Gone Like the Crease in $10 Pants. But uh, a trope can be a lot more complex. It can be, in fantasy, for example, an entire medieval culture repurposed as a fantasy setting. 
if you want to think of trope, a trope as words used other than literally, then a science fiction trope, this is a term I came up with, I think, is science used other than literally. What makes science fiction special and what's the basis of this book is that with advancing technology, the not yet real is made into something more than hand wavium. And so while science fiction is full of tropes, science used other than literally, there's a corner of science fiction with the unfortunate name of hard science fiction that does rigorous extrapolation from existing technology and existing science to look ahead. And that's the kind of thing that I look at in Troping the Light Fantastic. You've fleshed out with facts, with existing facts, with what is known in today's world, possible scenarios for the future. And I think this is just a brilliant bridge for people who cannot imagine those scenarios because mainly they don't have enough dots to to connect that you would have, for example. The internet revolution has been a massive change for people with digitalization, etc. But there's far more creative destruction to come. Yeah, I love the phrase creative destruction. It comes from uh, an obscure economist named Joseph Schumpeter, and he's talking about capitalism in general. But just looking back to the internet revolution, you know, 20 years ago, uh, we had a great example of how whole industries were overturned in a very short period of time with AI, with uh, big data with all of the, the new technologies that are bursting upon us. We're going to see more and more of that. And of course, science fiction has a role in helping us explore possible futures so that we're informed when we decide what we don't want to happen. Exactly. And and that's something we'll come back to with when we look at superintelligence, for example. But there's so much in the book. So I thought we'd focus on two main things today. Human 2.0, as you call it, the future of augmented humanity, humanity in the world of cyborgs and nanobots, and also artificial intelligence. You break it into two parts, which is soft artificial intelligence and hard artificial intelligence all the way through to super intelligence and our future in that world. So I thought we'd begin with human 2.0. You tell us tinkering with nature of humanity in science fiction goes back to the genre's earliest roots in 1886. Yeah, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was an experiment with chemically separating man's baser instincts from his higher instincts. And like all good fiction, something goes horribly wrong. But uh, for our purposes, it's just to point out that, yes, the interest goes way back. And oftentimes, Edward, I, I find the idea comes from science fiction or it comes from fantasy even sometimes, where somebody starts imagining futures. And Jules Verne talked about this before, where he imagined air travel, for example, way before anybody was working on air travel. And it's that piece that I think is fascinating about the genre. If we go back to augmented humanity or human 2.0, could we share some of the emerging technologies that will require us to take a fresh look at what it means to be human in the future? All right. So what are some some human 2.2 technologies, uh, artificial organs, genetic engineering, advanced prostheses, exoskeletons for the paralyzed, brain-computer interfaces. And, you know, we could do a whole show on any one of those topics, obviously. I'm particularly interested in prostheses 
and brain-computer interfaces. Those have been factors in quite a few of my stories, and they're very rapidly changing technologies. Starting with prostheses, for a long time, those consisted of things like peg legs and hook hands. But in the last few decades, uh, the technology has just grown by leaps and bounds. So uh, the conventional state-of-the-art, the kinds of things that Uh, most people with the need are able to purchase has to do with what's called myoelectric control. And that's when uh, muscles are used to signal into electronics and the electronics in turn control the prosthesis. Uh, It's a very artificial way of controlling things. You would, for example, train yourself to twitch uh, muscles in your chest to signal how motors in a a hand prosthesis should move. But it's certainly uh, an advance over a hook. The emerging technology is uh, electronic interfaces into these sorts of devices. If you implant electrodes into uh, the muscle stump, they can in turn signal to Uh, to motors in a prosthetic arm. The immediate problem with that technology is that the body doesn't like foreign objects and the electrodes tend to corrode. There's an anecdote in uh, Troping the Light Fantastic about a a real-world experiment of this sort. A person using this kind of technology played 6,000 games of uh, rock, paper, scissors, to train a prosthetic arm before he was able to uh, to serve himself a beer. Okay, as I remember the story more accurately, that wasn't an arm hooked up to his body. That was a robotic arm, but the principle is the same. The important thing to remember is our brain is this huge neural net, and the brain is always changing. And so after playing 6,000 games of rock, paper, scissors before he got control, Every night, his brain changed enough, whether from dreaming or short-term memories being recorded to long-term memories. I don't think anyone knows exactly what changed in the brain. He had to retrain the arm a little bit every morning. What I love in the book, and and for the audience who have not read the book, you talk about the technology and its advancements, and, and indeed, where it started out. And then you talk about the science fiction where it actually takes place. For example, you talk about neural prosthesis and blindness, and that maps perfectly. We've seen it time and time again in science fiction, but a common one that people may know, Geordi from Star Trek, for example. Right, and uh, visual prostheses are certainly uh, an important topic. There are sensor arrays that are being implanted in the back of the human eye, Uh, There are lots of conditions in which the receptors in the retina start failing and there aren't enough of them. And so these electrical arrays are implanted to to pick up signals and amplify them and transmit signals to the optic nerve. The current state of the art is that these are very low-resolution arrays. Even though people are able to see a little bit using these implants, they're still legally blind. In the United States, the standard for legal blindness is 
uh, visual acuity of less than 2200 that you can see less at 20 feet than a normally sighted person can see at 200 feet. Uh, these arrays also give you tunnel vision. They're only black and white imagery. So they're still early. But as a uh, proof of concept, they're very important. If you can put in an array that lets you see shapes vaguely, then you know in 10 years, 20 years, you can imagine there'll be much higher resolution arrays. There are some more advanced visual prostheses that bypass the retina entirely. Some people's retinas are completely shot by various conditions. And you can bypass the retina. You can even bypass the optic nerve. And there have been a few experiments with connections from cameras directly into the visual cortex. Those are also still low resolution, but those are really important experiments. And that's perhaps a segue to brain-computer interfaces. You know, it's so darn 20th century that we still use keyboards and displays. Why not have the computer talk directly to our visual cortex uh, so we can see things directly as a form of augmented reality? Uh, why not have computers talk directly into our inner ears, basically, by talking directly to our auditory cortex? And I say both of those things with the proviso that first we need to get a whole lot better at computer security. I don't want anyone hacking directly into my brain. Thank you very much. It's a massive problem, isn't it? Future when create all this new biometric data and we see all the big tech companies collecting health data. And there's a reason for that. There definitely is a reason. But the thought of them hacking into my brain is even scarier than someone hacking into my medical history. There was an episode of uh, the HBO show Homeland a few seasons ago where the vice president of the United States is killed by hacking into his pacemaker. You know, the minute you have all of these electronic devices and as part of the Internet of Things that are uh, hooked into our bodies, you really have to worry. And unfortunately, the track record of security and the Internet of Things is that there isn't any. Mm. You know, on the one hand, you uh, might want things to have only uh, unchangeable permanent memory with the argument that they can't be hacked. But on the other hand, if you make things unchangeable, then if you built them without adequate security, which somehow is always the case, then you can't fix them. So either you have permanent security holes or you make these appliances be online, and then, in principle, they're still hackable uh, by malicious enough software. It's a, it's a messy situation. It's a catch-22 situation. Yeah, and, and if you think about the future of security guards, I often think about it, the bodyguard of the future. It won't just protect in the actual physical body. It'll be any kind of traces of you know skin residue or any kind of anything that can give away data for the subject. That's right. And whereas it's often felt that biometrics are the key to better security, once your personal genome is in a database somewhere, then it's hackable. And at what point is your retinal print going to be in some database and hackable? Once your biometric data has been compromised, it's not something you can readily change. 
And then if you think about genetic therapy, looking more to the utopian side of human 2.0 is the genetic therapy and where that can go from a positive perspective and perhaps a negative one too. Okay. Well, genetic therapy is yet another one of these emergent technologies that science fiction loves to deal with. The good thing, of course, is if you can heal genetic diseases, and that's a real plus, you get into the ethical quandary of what constitutes a disease. You know, in the community of people who are born with what might be considered impaired hearing, some might consider that a handicap, other consider that just a separate community of humanity. And there's a lot of controversy over under what circumstances people should be given cochlear implants to address hearing issues. Now, that's not a genetic repair, but it's an example of the ethical quandary. Mm. But the minute you have the ability to alter the human genome, nothing says it's going to be limited to, to repair. So uh, take the example of athletes. There were lots of uh, athletic scandals, doping scandals of people who would take uh, a, a hormone called EPO, which uh, increases the amount of red blood cells in the body. Now, the body produces EPO naturally. So it's uh, sort of tricky to figure out if someone is doping to uh, artificially increase the amount of red blood cells and therefore the amount of oxygen in their body and therefore their endurance. Uh, Lance Armstrong, the cyclist, was eventually found to be doping with this uh, artificial hormone. Now, once the technology is available to help anemia victims uh, by enriching their supply of red blood cells, Who's to say an athlete isn't going to want to have precisely the same treatments as an athletic enhancement? Now, that's a pretty modest uh, enhancement to the human body. Mm. But you could uh, imagine all sorts of other enhancements from treating our skin so we're less uh, at risk of ultraviolet uh, radiation to uh, increasing our muscular strength to uh, potentially changing our longevity. There's uh, a known gene treatment that's not approved by the FDA to be used on anyone. It's only been used on mice, but their strength can be artificially increased. And, you know, that's the sort of thing athletes would like. But on the other hand, it uh, also decreases longevity. Who knows? whether someone with athletic aspirations would try to go that way. Well, if somebody's willing to take the risk of taking steroids, they're not too worried about their long-term health. They're looking for short-term gratification. It's great you mentioned Lance Armstrong and you know the, the cycling scandals we saw with drugs in the past because I, I often looked at that and I went, okay, but the, the bikes are like cutting-edge technology and what happens when you put the bike and the human together? So what happens when people start hacking their own personal bodies to get an extra edge, both in sport, but also in society? Yes. And like any new medical technology, you have the ethical conundrum of some people can afford the technology, some people can't. 
if we reach the stage of designer babies with enhancements, whether in intelligence or strength or appearance or endurance or whatever, there will be a period of time when those enhancements will be too expensive uh, and too complex for most people to have access. And, you know, there's lots of science fiction, obviously, in which you have the, uh, the privileged upper class and the, the downtrodden lower class. And this is just one more way to get there that I hope we don't experience. Yeah, and it's, it's one that the genre of science fiction touches on quite a bit is where you have this kind of split where an upper tier, an upper echelon of society that goes way beyond wealth into augmented bodies, way beyond strength, mentality as well. And you talk about even where people can, a la total recall, implant memories. Uh, I'm going to digress just for a minute to make one point about the book. We're talking about all the technology I discuss, and obviously that's the thrust of the book, but there are also several hundred examples where I cite short stories, movies, uh, novels, book series, TV series, where people can see examples of how uh, the various technologies are demonstrated for good or for ill. Yeah, and, and that piece actually really helps, I think, where I was talking about the linear mind who goes, okay, well, people are talking about artificial intelligence. I don't know what that will look like. And then that's what I thought was so good about the book. You match those examples to where they can read if they wanted to read a novel or a short story, but also then the existing movies going back right to the earliest part, earliest science fiction movies. And, and I, I love that because it's, it's joining the dots for people who would not see those dots. Before we go to AI, it'd be great to talk about brain-machine interfaces. So what happens when we start hacking human physiology? So hacking into the brain and then having brain-to-brain -brain interfaces, for example. There have actually been simple examples of brain-to-brain -brain interfaces already. Uh, there are simple uh, hats or helmets and uh, EEG readers that are used for gaming that can pick up uh, simple signals from your brain. You know, electroencephalographs uh, can only look at gross aggregate electrical signals from your brain because they're not inside your head. But that's still enough that if you train yourself, you can jiggle a signal on an oscilloscope or send simple signals to your gaming console, look right, look left, pick this up, pick that up, put that down. So there's a video game where, a first-person shooter game, where one person is able to see the screen and he's connected through his helmet to the internet and through the internet, another gamer has control of the joystick and is able to shoot. And using this setup, which is brain to internet to brain, one person is able to communicate with up to 80-some percent accuracy when to shoot. It's uh, not exactly telepathy, but it's a proof of concept. So using an EEG is uh, a low-resolution, low-accuracy sort of way to uh, have a person communicate using only his brain to a computer 
and it's been used with a, a few paraplegics to control some uh, prosthetic devices. Now, the most precise way to use your brain to talk to a computer would be to have electrodes implanted inside your brain, hooked into specific neurons in specific neural circuits that are relevant to the task at hand. Now, this means brain surgery, and uh, it's not something you would do lightly. There have been some instances of experiments of this nature when someone had to have brain surgery for other purposes. The electrodes don't last very long, again, because the body wants to reject foreign matter, but as a proof of concept, it works. And there have been implants of up to, I think, a couple hundred electrodes. And this is more precision than you would get with an EEG. There's an intermediate sort of brain-computer interface that uh, people are experimenting with where they lay a metal mesh over the brain. It still takes brain surgery, but at least you don't have to poke around inside the brain. The other concept you talk about is uploading your mind, where you can actually upload your mind into a machine, for example, the machine takes over. But you talked about the concept from Long Way Gone, which is one of the books you mentioned by David L. Clement, where you can actually upload your mind to a different planet where there's a recreated body that can survive on that planet. What I love about the genre is it gives those possibilities that many people would not have thought about and certainly wouldn't have the R&D budget to be working on. Uploading a brain, in my mind, no pun intended, is very far future. The, the thing is, the, the brain has an awful lot of data in it. So, you know, we're conditioned to think that the human genome contains an awful lot of data, and it does. It's three billion, more or less, base pairs, and the coding part of the genome is something like 30,000 genes. Now contrast that with the human brain. It's got something like 100 billion neurons, and those neurons uh, make up, are interconnected into something like 100 trillion synapses. We don't understand how thought works or consciousness or awareness or free will, if there is such a thing as free will. It's encoded somehow into those 100 billion neurons and that 100 trillion synapses. If we're going to upload a brain or a mind, we have to read out that data and write it into some sort of simulation of the brain that can use the data. Now, that's, first of all, an incredible amount of data. And how do you do it? The second uh, complication is that not all of that information in the brain has to do with conscious thought. An awful lot of our brain deals with regulating organs and hormones and processing sensory data. If you transfer the mind into a completely different substrate loaded into a computer, what does that do to our consciousness to have that part of our brain suddenly gone. Third complication, when you're reading out all of this data, how do you do it simultaneously? Because our brain is always churning. We're thinking, we're remembering, we're reprocessing, we're 
transferring memories from short-term memory to long-term memory in the brain. So if you're reading all this data out sequentially, you're going to potentially have an inconsistent snapshot because it's not a snapshot, it's a tape. Now, a lot of what's in our brains is trivial, and who cares if it uh, is recorded in a garbled sense? But if uh, something important gets recorded in an inconsistent way, this way lies insanity. One of the books I cited, one of the novels that is, was uh, Nexus by Ramez Nam. And there's a very important character in the book who has been uploaded to a supercomputer. And a human character, in the interest of controlling and punishing the uploaded character, cuts off her access to her clone body. And without the physiological feedback, this character goes insane. So that's a lot about brain-computer interfaces, really neat technology. But uh, for the reasons I mentioned, probably not something we're going to see in a serious way, especially to the extent of uploading anytime soon. Even robotics, for example, there's a natural crossing of disciplines here between AI and human augmentation. And you cover this in your own novel, Interstellar Net, where you talk about human cyborg hybrids that also are powered by technology. And one of the ones most common to most of us would be from Star Trek, the Borg, for example. My Interstellar Net series has a lot of that. It the augmentation appears most prominently in the, the third and last book in the series, Interstellar and Enigma. You know, once you have a brain-computer interface, then one of the things you might want to do is spend a lot of time talking to artificial intelligences on the net. We already spend time, probably too much, dealing with digital assistants. A true AI would be a lot smarter than Siri or Google Now. What I did in uh, this novel was say, let's go a little bit further. With miniaturization nanotechnology, we could probably implant AI assistance into our own skulls. And the augmented characters in my novel have gone this route. They have full-fledged AIs embedded in their brains. And so even if they were to cut off internet access, they would have access to the second personality at all times. It's a brilliant concept. And again, given people ideas, they may not discover themselves through incremental innovations. And that coinciding with what you talked about earlier, about somebody going way beyond your personal data into your mind, in a world of AI inside you through nanobots, etc., it becomes very, very important to have top security. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. We need a revolution in security, uh, I think, more than anything. And you can see that in current events as much as any place else. We might move to AI then. Because I really have to say, in the book, your explanations are so clear. You've simplified this so well for people. If you do want a primer in AI and the history of AI, I think this is a brilliant book for that. And you, you start in the book by defining weak AI, and then we'll move on to stronger AI and superintelligence. But it'd be great to get an understanding, in your words, of weaker AI. Weak AI is a task that we are accustomed to thinking of as taking human intelligence to perform, but uh, 
taken alone would never be confused with human level intelligence. Uh, as an example, game playing. We used to think that only a human could play chess. There are now chess playing programs that can beat the, the best human chess players, but that's all they can do. And a chess playing program would never think of starting a game of chess, much less inventing the game of chess. So a chess playing program is very much an example of weak AI. There are expert programs that are used for diagnostic purposes in medicine. For example, IBM has a program that they use to diagnose various kinds of cancers. They'll look at biopsy samples and look for anomalies in the imagery. That's a very important function, but if all a system can do is look at imagery and find anomalies in in cell images, uh, you'd never confuse that with human intelligence, even if 10 years ago only an oncologist or a radiologist could do it. That's a great one to pull out, Edward, because people often see the AI as a replacement for somebody, but at the moment... I heard this great term, instead of running from AI, you run with it. So you use it as a as a partner. So a doctor working alongside an AI who can self-improve on anal- analyzing data is a really good partnership. So far, that's the state of the art. Uh, there is no strong AI. Strong AI is human-level intelligence that can perform lots of tasks that a human could and that in certain contexts might be confused with the human. The, the classic definition of how you would know we've achieved strong AI is what's called the Turing test after a brilliant scientist, Alan Turing, who's perhaps best known for cracking the German military codes during World War II, but also did a lot of the foundational work on AI. The Turing test would say that if you were communicating with two entities in a way whereby you could not see them, perhaps by exchanging text, and you could not tell which was a human and which was a machine, then the machine was intelligent. And this was a form of strong intelligence. You say as well, Edward, that the one thing that AI lacks massively is common sense, common knowledge, like humans, that human skill that we have. And for example, you mentioned the Open Mind Common Sense Project. Right. The thing is, there's nothing common about common sense. We have to learn it. You and I know that uh, if you have a ball in your hand and you drop it and you let go of it, it's going to fall. We think of that as common sense. But look at a baby with a ball in its hand. He or she doesn't know how gravity works. And they'll perform the experiment again and again and again. It's uh, really amusing the first few times. (laughs) It gets tiresome after a while. (laughs) But they eventually learn. (laughs) For two minutes. And and that leads nicely to the Moravex paradox that you talk about. I hadn't heard this one before. And it's a great way to encapsulate this thought. Okay, you've just given me the, uh, I've just experienced the synapse misfire. I've forgotten what the Moravec paradox is. I'm sure you can remind me. 
It's the roboticist Hans Moravac, and he summarized the situation this way. It is comparatively easy to make computers exhibit adult-level performance or on intelligence tests or playing checkers, and difficult or impossible to give them the skills of a one-year-old when it comes to perception and mobility. Ah, right, right, exactly. So one of the interesting points that uh, AI researchers have made is that what we think of as intelligence, higher-level thought, the things that are going on uh, in our conscious minds relate to a part of the brain that is very new, whereas uh, extrapolating the motion of objects falling in gravity, as an example, are very old parts of the brain. For survival purposes, it's very handy to, uh, to know how the physical world works. And so these are very long-established parts of the brain, and that maybe we think of thought and chess playing as hard problems just because only a new part of the brain performs them, and that the things that it took evolution millennia and, and eons to establish were hard problems, but evolution has, uh, has established them. It leads nicely to your own conundrum that you mentioned in the book, which is the lather, rinse, repeat problem that we may see where, like any technology, unaware AI can lead to unforeseen consequences, which is what you mentioned here. Okay, this is our segue to superintelligence and the people who have expressed concern that AI is going to turn hostile and replace us, that we might inadvertently create some superintelligence that will take too literally our directions. So if we tell an AI that it should run a, a paperclip factory and do nothing but make paperclips, it'll run amok and turn uh, the entire mass of Earth, including humanity, into paperclips. <laughs> and seriously, people have expressed this concern, and I think it's a pretty silly concern. Uh, if you look at a shampoo bottle, it gives directions, lather, rinse, repeat. And most of us manage to break out of the loop because we're intelligent. Uh, we'll at least stop when the shampoo bottle is empty. We don't go charging naked to the drugstore to buy endless supplies <laughs> of shampoo. So my theory is anything that we would characterize as intelligent, much less super intelligent, is going to have enough machine learning to uh, not turn us all into paperclips. <laughs> it's a brilliant way to explain that, that challenge that we have to be very specific with the orders we give to AI because it could take them literally. We do have to, but I take comfort from machine learning. There is a common misunderstanding that because many paths to uh, AI involve programming, that a program can never do anything more than what it's been instructed to do. And that's demonstrably false. You can write programs that are capable of what's called machine learning. Very simply, a machine learning program with a feature called scoring will uh, quickly learn which approaches get good scores and which approaches get bad scores. So let's go back to the weak AI example I gave before of evaluating biopsies looking for cancers. If the program is told, you guessed wrong this time, it will 
de-emphasize whatever part of its algorithm was used to misinterpret the data. And if you tell the program or it is able to tell on its own that it correctly identified a cancerous sample, it will emphasize whatever part of its programming uh, got at that correct evaluation. And so a programmed weak AI will learn and get more and more capable. There are also non-programming forms of uh, AI like neural nets and deep learning with neural nets that uh, get more and more capable and learn along the way. So if you have a capability in a program to learn, it ought to be able to learn not to do stupid things. That's the challenge, isn't it? Of It doesn't have that common sense program that it can learn from because it's very, very difficult to teach that. It's difficult to teach that, and that's why there are these open source efforts to encode, you know, literally many thousand rules of what we think of as common sense. The even bigger challenge than teaching common sense is teaching ethics. The biggest problem in my mind with AI is having it do that which is ethical, given that our sense of what is ethical changes with time. If you look back 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, there have been radical changes in who we think should have what rights. In the United States, slavery was fought over you know, roughly 150 years ago. Suffrage for women, the right to vote, was an issue less than 100 years ago. Rights for uh, transgendered people are being argued about even now. So any kind of ethics you would want to hard code into an AI would probably be horrifying to our descendants 100 years from now. So you, you really don't want to hard code ethics into an AI. You, you need to teach it ethics and teach it to advance with time. It's a brilliant segue actually for when the machine becomes autonomous or if it does. For example, you talk about autonomous weapons. And I didn't know this, that the UN has sponsored efforts for a global ban on robotic weapons. But of course, that's not going to happen because everybody's going to want to get the edge up on, on each other. But it'd be great to touch on that, Edward. Autonomous weapons are a, a pretty scary concept. There are levels of autonomy, of course. You can say, attack this target, but you, the AI, have some independence as to exactly how you go about it. What is the really scary possibility is if you were to give general parameters and say, these conditions identify a target and leave it up to the AI to decide what individual is a target, what degree of collateral damage is acceptable. That would be really scary, and I hope we never see that. Yeah, and I suppose the famous one that we're all so aware of because of its success in the box office was the Terminator franchise, and where where AI through Skynet becomes autonomous and turns off humanity, essentially. There have been uh, lots of stories of that ilk, and somehow they, they tend not to end well for humanity. But I like to think that it's a, a false worry that true AI and super intelligence, when it actually happens, will uh, be self-learning and ethical. 
one of the biggest exponents of AI and a bold future is Ray Kurzweil. And his answer to all this is we don't have to worry about AI because when it comes about, it's going to be us, that we will have uploaded ourselves into the machine and we don't have to worry about it because it's us. I think this is a very short-sighted and scary view of things because humans are famously neurotic and psychotic and sociopathic, not all of us individually, but individuals. And if it's a psychopath or a sociopath who uploads and is controlling uh, too much power, that's pretty scary. Edward, that's a brilliant way to conclude because I'd love to understand your thoughts of the future of superintelligence, but also I'd love to understand your thoughts on humans of the future. So the skills we need to develop, for example, if a college kid is looking at new roles or new jobs to get into, what type of things they should be looking at? Man, that's a whole other complex topic. (laughs) Obviously, more and more of the traditional economy is being automated. The, the tendency seems to be that the more rote or predictable a task is, the more readily it's being automated. Everything from repetitive motion in factories to placing stock orders. What I suspect will be the, the last things to be automated are the things we perceive of as quintessentially human, like creativity programming, writing, acting. These are tasks that will be the last things to be taken over by our non-carbon descendants. Will will there be a time when anything we can do, our descendants can also do? I suspect that's the case. That doesn't necessarily mean we'll be obsolete, but it certainly will be a whole different world. And when the time comes when we can automate the creation of every kind of necessity in life, whether food or fuel or entertainment, the interesting challenge in my mind is, what do we do with ourselves? There will be no need to work when our factories can produce everything we want. There'll be no need to create if we can just consume entertainment that's been produced by artificial intelligence. So what I see as the ultimate challenge for humanity is deciding how we find value in our time on Earth and throughout the universe. Beautiful. And I think it's worth mentioning as well, this book, Troping the Light Fantastic, is brilliantly written. It's really simply written for somebody with such a vast background in technology. You've done a brilliant job of simplifying it. And you mentioned in your acknowledgements, you thank somebody who ensured you didn't wax too esoteric, a term I haven't heard before, which is your wife, Ruth. My first and favorite reader. (laughs) Edward, where can people find out more about you, your blog, and and all your books? My blog is titled SF and Nonsense. That's thoughts, musings, and occasionally rants on science fiction and science fiction. 
My website is, obviously enough, edwardmlearner.com. You can read about any and all of my books on my website or at your favorite uh, e-tailer. It's been a pleasure talking to you, author of over 18 titles and the topic of this week's show, Troping the Life Fantastic. Edward M. Lerner, thanks for joining us. Aiden, thanks for having me on the show. And as always, you can catch up on the show on www.theinnovationshow.io and on medium, medium.com forward slash the Thursday thought. Thank you.